Amen. Good morning to you all. It's a good thing our worship team anticipated the projector outage and picked some songs that we know this morning. Galatians chapter 3. And I am convinced that nobody in their right mind would ever want to debate the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets with the Apostle Paul. Not just because of you know, the way that he learned them and his education growing up and his brilliant legal mind, his capacity for memorization and what he would recall. But then, of course, he got saved, as we know, on the road to Damascus. And then right after that, he spent three years with the Lord in the desert of Arabia, just one-on-one. -on -one. Now, you can only imagine what that time would have been like. I mean, he already had the background, but now to go through everything he already knew about the Old Testament and then everywhere, and it's all over the place, everywhere where there's some sort of reference to Messiah to now plug in Jesus Christ and for that to just open his eyes and to make sense of everything he had learned contextually, to unlock the mysteries that he had been studying his whole life. I mean, it would have uh, turned the light bulb on inside of him. Now, you combine that with his background, that he was a legalist. He wasn't just a legalist. He trained legalists. So when these Judaizers come, he knows not only what they're thinking, he knows what they're going to think before they even think it. And here's what they thought. They believed Paul was an heir by uh, taking adherence to the law completely out of the salvation equation. And so what does he do? He provides and has provided for us scriptural precedents that predates the law to demonstrate otherwise. And he's taken us all the way back in the book of Galatians to the book of Genesis. As we know that God had promised to bring about through Abraham a great nation. And he did it at a time in which Abraham and Sarah had no children, and they were past the age in which they could reasonably expect to have children, and yet the Bible tells us that Abraham believed God anyway. Well, some time went by from the initial promise to Genesis chapter 15, which is sort of what we've been looking at as we're going through the book of Galatians. God shows up at the beginning of Genesis 15, and he says to Abraham, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. And Abraham, and I'm paraphrasing, he responded something to the extent of, well, that's great, Lord, but here I am and I still have no kids. And you've made this promise to make this great nation through me and I'm getting older. I'm not getting any younger. And you should see Sarah as well. Strike that for the 11 a.m. service. <laughs> Word that a little differently. So he makes this covenant with Abraham. And we saw that last time, how they went about putting this covenant together. It was the way that they did a contract in those days. That was brilliant, awesome. Remember last week, what they did to seal a deal, Abraham would 
offer up the sacrifice of animals that he would split from head to toe and a line on a road to create a corridor that in that day two men would pass down to seal a contract. If they were in between the sacrificed pieces of animals, that would mean that they were in total agreement. That would be like the notary, that we are both pledging to keep up our end of the bargain. And that was God's idea to do that. Abraham followed through. He set the stage. He lined up the animals. He waited all day for God to show up, but God didn't show up until the very end after Abraham had fallen asleep. And then God proceeded to pass down that corridor by himself without Abraham. And the reason why he did that was because this agreement that he was going to make with Abraham was going to be totally one-sided. It was going to be all God. It wasn't going to be Abraham. Abraham wasn't going to live up to his end of the bargain. God was going to do all of the work. It was a picture of grace. A picture of God's grace 14 years before Genesis chapter 17 where circumcision is instituted and 400 plus years before the law is given to Moses and on to the people. God accounted, and the word accounted means credited because Abraham wasn't righteous on his own. God accounted, he credited Abraham with righteousness, and then he put it in writing by sealing the deal with this contract, a binding contract that could never be amended, it could never be annulled, and it was an agreement that was going to be based solely on grace and nothing else. Not on Abraham following through, not on Abraham keeping up his end of the bargain, not on Abraham following through in any way. All Abraham had to do was accept God's promise. Now, the glaring problem, the blaring problem, it's one of those two, you can look it up and get back to me later, for any religion that has its roots in the Old Testament, which most of them do, and that is works-based, is that it's either, every religion, by the way, is either works-based or grace-based. Because those two things are mutually exclusive. God comes along and says, no, before there was ever the law, there was grace. Paul points that out for us using this attorney mind that he had to establish that it's always been by grace through faith. And the problem for anyone who wants to mix and match works with grace is they have a problem of precedence. The problem of precedence is that God saved Abraham by grace through faith and nothing else. And what he was communicating there was that he was always and only going to save by grace through faith long before circumcision, the law, the festivals, the traditions, whatever would come about throughout the nation of Israel. Now Paul knew that that would raise a question in the minds of the legalists, of the Judaizers, that he was answering here with this letter to the region of Galatia. And that question that they would ask, he perfectly anticipates in verse 19, which will be the focus and the emphasis for our study this morning. But first, we got to pick up where we left off last time, just to finalize this argument in verses 15 through 18. He says, brethren, I speak in the manner of Men, that means in human terms, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. In other words, even in a contract that is just merely between 
two people, once it is confirmed, as he says there, or signed, nobody can add to it or take it away unless you're a professional athlete or a politician, which seems to be the case this day. You know, you cannot go out and buy a car, right? You sign a deal, it's like a five-year loan for 250 bucks, and then about a year in you go, I think a $175 payment would work better for me. You can't do that, obviously, because that's a contract that you signed. Now, what he's saying here is, if that's true of people, if that's true in a human contract, how much more so is that true when God is the one that is establishing his contract with humanity? So verse 16, he says, now to Abraham and his, look what it says there, seed, capital S, were the promises made. He does not say antecedes as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, singular and capital, who is Christ. So who were the promises made to Abraham concerning? Were they made to Abraham concerning the Jewish people? Was the seed the nation of Israel? No, Paul says that the capital S seed, singular, is Christ. That the promise that was going to be fulfilled through Abraham's line was going to be fulfilled. God was going to bless all of the nations of the earth through Messiah. He continues, and this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was conformed before God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What is that, you wonder? What does that mean there? Simply this, and it's great. God made a promise to Abraham, and what he's saying is that promise, if it is in some way contingent upon the law, then it cannot be a promise because that would necessitate Abraham's participation. But the example that we saw from Genesis 15, Genesis 15 was that it would absolutely not necessitate Abraham's participation. That was the point of God walking down the corridor by himself. So the law cannot add to, it cannot annul the promise. The law can't take away, it cannot add to the promise of blessing that was given to Abraham, which was based on grace and based on God's faithfulness, not Abraham's follow through. And the same thing is true then for us. The blessings that God rains down on us, the ministry that he works through us, the salvation that he's given to us, we don't earn those things because of our adherence to the law, nor do we forfeit those things because we fail to keep the law either. The law is completely independent of that. Our obedience to the law does not earn us our salvation, and it does not determine whether God does or does not bless us. Okay. So now the question becomes, if the law of Moses, and this is what the legalist would ask, if the law of Moses was not given to us to establish our own righteousness before God, then what is the purpose of the law? And Paul here, again, uh, carrying forward both sides of the argument, perfectly anticipating what it would be that they would answer back, he's going to give us, I've pulled out, four reasons. The purpose of the law, four different purposes here 
in verses 19, 22, 23, and 24. There may be more, and you might find more, but I've pulled out four of them. Beginning in verse 19, he says, What purpose then does the law serve? And number one, he says it was added because of transgressions. And that phrase means so that we understand what transgression actually is. Romans chapter 7, verse 7 says that I would not have known sin except through the law. So the number one purpose for the law then is that we would know sin. It would, def it would define and it would reveal for us what is sin. You think about how the law works. It's kind of like a thermometer. When you have the f a fever, you uh, take your temperature. And if the thermometer says that you have 102 fever, then there you go. That's what you have. You don't break up that thermometer and take it with water to help solve your fever. The thermometer only reveals to you that you have a fever. Today we have incredible medical equipment that can show us that there's something wrong inside of us. You ever had an MRI done before? If you haven't, it's not something you want to rush to do right away. It's like a test to see how claustrophobic you actually are. And then they make these really loud pounding noises and they play a little soft music to try to put you to sleep. But it doesn't work at all. But here's what it does do. It shows you what's wrong with you. It cannot solve what's wrong with you. you got something going on inside or you got something that needs to be fixed. It can't do the work for you, but it can create an image that shows us that there is something wrong. And similarly, the law was never meant to be something that would reconcile us to God. It was only meant to reveal that there was a problem and then bridge the gap until Messiah came. He says, uh, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. He's speaking of Jesus, right? And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Now, do you know what that means? I don't really either, but I'll give you the gist of it here, okay? Read it many times. Atop Mount Sinai, and you have to put about five verses together because it doesn't say that in Exodus. But atop Mount Sinai, apparently God did not give the Ten Commandments directly to Moses, but he gave them to angels, and then the angels gave them to Moses, okay? And then Moses, of course, gave them to the people. That speaks of mediation, as he's speaking of a mediator there in those verses. Now, there's mediation as opposed to God's covenant with Abraham or Christ's covenant with us. In other words, God did not deal directly with the Israelites in giving them the law, as he did deal directly with Abraham in establishing the promise as he does deal directly with us in giving us his son, the Holy Spirit, and now we have this direct line of communication. We can go boldly before the throne. So what is he communicating there? The law was never meant to establish a direct relationship with God. It was never meant to establish intimacy with God, whereas the promise, which, by the way, precedes the law, was given by God to Abraham directly, and it was meant to establish intimacy with God. And so the clues are all there from the beginning, and that's what he's communicating with us. The law was meant to reveal that we were sinners in need of a Savior, but never meant to produce intimacy or a direct relationship with him. It was, if anything, it showed us that we could not have a direct relationship with him because we all fall short of his glory. So then verse 21, he says, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. 
For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Don't forget, there's nothing wrong with the law of Moses. The law of Moses is perfect. But the only problem with the law of Moses is outside of Jesus Christ, nobody can keep the law of Moses. But if anybody could possibly keep the law of Moses, then it would produce life because the law is perfect. So there's nothing wrong with the law is what he's saying. If there was a law by which someone could have attained life, it would be the law of Moses. But verse 22, the scripture has confined all under sin. And the word confined there means to imprison. Every single person before they come to Jesus Christ is a prisoner of sin. And the law makes that abundantly clear. Which by the way, since it says that all are confined under sin, that means that you and I should not be surprised. We should not be jolted. We should not panic when we look at some of the craziness that we see in the world around us. What else do we expect when the Bible makes it clear that all are confined under sin? So we can see things and we can scratch our heads and we can pray, but it shouldn't rattle us because all are confined under sin. And what do you expect? I don't know if you saw, and I am in no way encouraging you to see it, but I did. If you saw the video that ISIS released this week. Now, I just wonder as I watched that video, my thought was, what's wrong with these guys? My other thought was, and what will they do next? If they will light someone on fire and create a video for everyone to see, will they not next throw someone to animals and capture a video of that as well? Now, we see that and we go, are you kidding? What is wrong with them? Except that that's to be expected in part because the whole world is confined under sin. I don't want to make a whole big deal about it, but there's a very important point I want to make here. But you know, maybe you've seen this story about Bruce Jenner, the Olympic decathlete who now has decided, it seems, the word is that he's going to become a woman. Now, this is a shocking story for anyone who grew up and watched Bruce Jenner as an athlete. Now, I'm not making this point. I'm not on a high horse. I'm not attacking any particular issue in our society. I'm not about social issues. We're about the gospel. But you and I both know, if you've seen the way in which this story has been covered, everybody's walking on eggshells around it. Because nobody wants to say that what he's doing is in any way strange or sinful or wrong. Now here's the problem. The problem isn't so much that any one person that's a man wants to become a woman. The bigger problem is society's reaction to it. Because if society is going to back down to political correctness and not say that that's sin, then society has lost its ability to judge anything right or wrong. Now the bigger, the bigger problem with that then is if we won't say that that is wrong, then there's no gospel. If there is not objective moral values given by an objective moral lawgiver, there's no gospel. Because why then did Jesus die on the cross? For sins. If the church, and I don't expect news reporters to do it, but if the church isn't going to say, no, that's sin, it still is, it always will be sin, doesn't matter what society says, doesn't matter what political correctness is, that's sin. If we don't do that, no one else will. 
And so we have to stand up for what sin actually is because without sin, there's no gospel. We'd all be confined under sin and we'd stay confined under sin. That's why he says there the promise, end of the verse, by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Read the whole verse together. But the scriptures can bind us all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. In other words, the reason why the scripture was given to us to reveal to us that we're all confined under sin is so that we all can come to Jesus Christ. Every single one of us. So I'm not taking any one particular sin and picking on that as opposed to my sin or your sin. But the purpose of the law is to say, this is sin so that they could come to Jesus Christ and be saved. The law prepared the way, or we should say the law prepared the need for a savior. Which is why, by the way, at some point when you're witnessing to someone, you cannot simply just share your testimony with them. At some point, you got to talk to them about sin. It's good to share your testimony. But if you only share your testimony, then you'll probably get a response like this. Well, I'm glad that works for you. I'm glad that you're happy. I'm glad that you found your truth. That's something along those lines, because they won't feel that same need for Jesus. It's why we can't just go to someone and say, you know, God loves you, and Jesus died on the cross to save you. Because without talking about sin, without helping them to understand that they've been confined under the law by their sin, then they would have no rationally compelling reason to accept Christ. So sure, I want to go to heaven, but I'm going to do it without Jesus. I plan on going to heaven, I'll be there with you, but I don't believe in Jesus. They would have no reason to accept Jesus because they don't see the seriousness of the situation as it relates to their sin. And until a person recognizes that they are a sinner in need of a savior, then what reason would they have to accept a savior, let alone a Lord? And it's one of the mistakes that we make in modern day evangelism, which is that we fail to help people to understand that God does indeed take sin seriously. You say, well, I thought that it was his goodness that causes people to come to repentance. It is. But it is his goodness which shines amidst the seriousness of sin that shows us just how radical and amazing his grace is. That's how you see how good he is. How good would God be if, we, if he saved us from nothing? He saves us from serious sin and you go, wow, that's amazing. That's amazing grace. And that's what we see. You know, imagine if you were to get on a plane later on tonight and from San Francisco to Hawaii. And you probably have to imagine that because you probably can't go anytime soon like me. But imagine you were to get on a plane and about, oh, a couple hours into the flight, the flight attendant was called up to the cockpit to talk to the pilot and the pilot were to say something along the lines of, hey, we got a serious problem. Uh, we are running out of fuel really quick and we are not gonna make it to Hawaii. And I need you to go back there and I need you to pass out these parachutes. So here's this flight attendant. And this flight attendant's like, whoa. She brushes back the tears and gathers herself a little bit here, composes herself, I have a big responsibility. And then heads up to the front and gets on the, you know, the comm and says, greetings passengers, could I interest any of you in a parachute today? 
Uh, it will probably make your flight a little bit more smooth along the way and give you a sense of inner peace and fulfillment and joy and happiness and all those kinds of things. Now, there might be inevitably a few people, sure, I'll take one. <laughs> but the fact is, is that that is the way sometimes that we sell Jesus in church from the pulpit as it's something that will help your life now. When, by the way, it doesn't always, from the outward appearance of people who are watching us as Christians, it doesn't always seem like Jesus makes my life better now because sometimes it comes with trial and tribulation. So it doesn't always seem like that. It is a better life, but it doesn't always seem like that. And so it's very important that people understand that that plane is going down, <laughs> that it's headed for destruction. And without that parachute, without Christ, I'm headed for destruction as well. You take sin out of the gospel message. Well, it's the good news. Jesus died for you and he wants to take you with him to heaven because he loves you. And now all you have to do is turn your heart to him and confess your sin. And that is not going to reach people the way God intended for them to be reached because sin has to be a part of it. God has added the law to salvation. You notice it said back there that it was added back in verse 22 or verse 21 that the law was added because of transgressions. Because the, here is grace and now God has added the law so that we would understand why we need grace. So that's point number two. Now point number three. Verse 23 says, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. So here's the third purpose of the law, is that it keeps people under guard, as he says, kept for the faith. The idea behind kept under guard is that humanity would be kept from pure debauchery that would otherwise ensue without the law, right? That God gave us the law even before people come to Christ, so that they have a sense of right or wrong or otherwise, we would have nothing to protect us from ourselves along the way. So you look around at the United States of America right now and you think, well, this isn't the same place that I grew up in as a kid and it's not what it once was. But all you have to do is travel somewhere in the world to another country that doesn't have as its basis of morality the law of Moses and Christ-likeness. And when you come back to this country, you will literally kiss the ground that you walk on because you will be appreciative of the fact that we're all beneficiaries, that we get to live in a place where the law of Moses is the standard for right and wrong in our country, designed to protect, to keep us under guard from the destructiveness of sin. As he said, kept for the faith until Messiah would come. And that's precisely why as we see the law of Moses being removed as the basis for right living in our society, it breaks your heart. Because you know then that not only does that mean that sin will continue to spiral out of control in our country if they continue to do that, but it also means then that there will be no defining of sin by which people will see a need to come to a savior uh, anyway. And then finally, the fourth purpose of the law here in verse 24, he says, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The word tutor there, if you read the King James, it's that word schoolmaster. You may remember. You remember, uh, think about one of those like one-room schoolhouses in frontier times. That's kind of the imagery that you're getting there as you look at that. 
And a schoolmaster or a tutor is someone that teaches someone else something. And what the law was meant to teach all of humanity, principally communicating one thing, it's this. You're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. You don't make the grade, you don't pass the test. You are, you have an Adam nature. You are hopeless without Christ. You are hopelessly lost in your sin. You cannot keep all these laws. You need a savior, and that principally points you to Jesus Christ. That is the main purpose of the law. So you say, well, the law has no purpose anymore. No, it does, because the law is what drives me to the point where I need Jesus Christ. Now, once that has happened, once I've accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior, now the law has served its purpose. Verse 25, but after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. So once Jesus Christ comes and lives inside of you and me, once we have the Holy Spirit, I'm no longer in need of the law. Now that does not mean that Jesus does away with the law. He comes to fulfill the law. But Christ's presence living inside of us, his Holy Spirit given to us means I don't need the law anymore because Christ is perfect fulfillment of the law. Nothing the Holy Spirit will ever tell you will run contrary to what the law says. In fact, the Holy Spirit will only take the law further than the law goes. Jesus came along and he said, well, you heard it said that you're not supposed to kill, but I say if you have hatred in your heart towards your brother, you've committed murder anyway. So that's what the Holy Spirit can do even more than the law. The Holy Spirit never contradicts the law, but takes it a step further and says, Joe, I know what you're thinking right now, and don't go there. Don't even think that way. Don't even start to go down that road or that might lead to sin. It's an extra step of accountability beyond what the law could ever do. Speaking of that, verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. No law could ever make us a son or daughter of God. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So this is, again, one of the things we've been talking about, but he spells it out here, and it is eye-opening, because you have to remember that a typical Jew before Christ, a male Jew, and this is something the Bible teachers tell us, for years now, they would wake up in the morning and they would pray, God, thank you that I'm not a Gentile, that I'm not a slave, and that I'm not a woman. And the gospel comes along and changes all of that here, levels out the playing field, puts us all on even ground, all across the board. I don't care what your race is. I don't care what your political affiliation is. I don't care whether you're male or female. I don't care how much money you make. He comes along here and he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. God does not hear a Jew's prayer more than a Gentile or a male more than a female. And that's what he's establishing here. It's all the same. And when God looks at humanity now, after Christ, you know, we, have, we live in the most hyphenated country in the world, maybe of all time. And we get our feelings bent out of shape so easily because we align ourselves with a group or a way of thinking. And God looks at humanity and sees two types of people, saved and unsaved. And that's it. And by the way, our politicians and our civil rights leaders are never going to be able to solve the big divide, the polarization, 
in this country until they get to the root of the problem and God's solution for it, which is the gospel, which makes everybody equal before Almighty God. You are either in Christ or you're not yet in Christ. That's everybody across the board, saved or unsaved. In verse 29, speaking of those that are, he says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So what is he saying? He's saying you are beneficiaries. You inherit, you are heirs of the very same promise that was given to Abraham. Why? Because the law doesn't change that. It never changed the way that God was going to save people. He was always going to save them as he saved Abraham. Abraham was not some exception. The law came along, and the law then demonstrates to us that we needed to be saved, that we needed to put faith in God, because we are all a little bit fallen. We're a lot bit fallen. We're short of God's glory. So think about it just as we close. It's wonderful when you think about it. It's brilliant, very simple. He first gives us grace, right? The precedence is the first establishment is grace. The second thing he gives us is law. And the third thing he gives us is Christ. Why did he do that? Because if he had given us the law first, then the Judaizers would have a point. Hey, you can't just do away the law because the law came first. If he had given us Christ first, we would wonder why Christ had to die. But he gives us grace first so that no one could be confused about the fact that that's how God's going to save people. He gives us the law so that we understand that we need to be saved. And then he gives us Christ so that we see the price that was paid so that grace could be won on our behalf. And that's what he's laid out for us so far in the book of Galatians. And when you get it and it opens up your eyes, you go, wow, this is awesome. Because God has brought us all the way to this point. He's never veered. He hasn't changed anything. He's not confused. He knows what he wants to do along the way. And when you get it, you go, oh, it makes perfect sense. Grace was always there. Then he gave us the law to show us our need for grace. And then Jesus paid the price for that grace. It's a wonderful truth and something to be shared with people as we leave here today. Father, thank you for your word. A wonderful book of Galatians, God. And we thank you that we're saved by grace and not of ourselves. And Lord, we just pray that you would enable us to partner with you in sharing that truth today. God, it's always been your plan. It always will be your plan. Lord, there is purpose in the law. And we thank you for that. It's not without reason that you gave humanity a law and Lord we we just come to you and we we confess to you that this is a world that is very antagonistic to your law God and we we frankly sometimes don't know how to tell people that they're sinners in a way that we're not going to just run them away God if you would give us the courage and the words to say we'll be your spokespeople Lord, give us the love to do it in also. But we just confess our complete inadequacy. And people are, as you know, God, you all too well know. And you reached us, even with our pride getting in the way. And you can reach others. And I just pray that you'd empower us this morning, Lord. Help us to know how to say what we have to say, who to say it, and when to say it. Work through us, we pray, God. We're hesitant, some of us. Some of us are afraid. Some of us have no idea where to even begin. But I think we're all willing, Lord. I 
I think we all want this same soul-saving salvation for everyone, Lord. We don't, we don't want to restrict anybody. So convince us, Lord, change us, soften our hearts with worship and communion now, build us up with fellowship later, whatever needs to be worked in our lives to prepare us for what you have for somebody else, God. We pray your will be done, and we ask it in Jesus' name.